You're listening to A Prophet, a collaboration between Sakhlain and Al-Hujja Islamic Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming our patron by donating at sakhlain.org support. Now, I would like to mention something here which is very sensitive and this might be a little bit off topic but because it's so important I would like to have a discussion with you. You know last week we had a nice discussion on capital punishment, right? For those of you who were here. This issue of enslaving women and children and in fact let's take it a step even further where in Islamic law you know the Quran does talk about it, the the concept of ima women as being taken as slaves, they're even called sex sex slaves, right? We have verses about that in the Quran, from the hadith. Looking at this 14 centuries later, how do we reconcile this with the mercy of the Prophet with the rahmah of Islam? How can we rationalize something like that? I would like to share a a few points with you, then we can see how we can discuss this, I would like to hear your opinions about it. First of all, in Islamic law, there are only limited ways someone can be enslaved. You can't just go and raid a city and enslave its people like ISIS did in Iraq. They just you know, decided let's invade the villages of these Yazidis and let's just enslave them. This is not recognized by Islamic law, you can't do that. The forms of enslavement in Islam are the strictest forms when you compare it to even the monotheistic religions. Look at Judaism for example, how does a person get enslaved in Judaism? Many ways you know, if you borrow money from an Israeli, Israelite, someone who comes from the Bani Israel, from that family, from that ancestry, if you borrow money and you don't repay it, you know what what their law, what Jewish law states? It's in the Torah, what does Jewish law state? You became enslaved. The person has the right to enslave you. Or if a person has a son-in-law and he doesn't give the dowry to his daughter, you can enslave him. According to Jewish law, if you steal, you get enslaved. And we've heard about the story of Prophet Yusuf right? When he wanted his brother Binyamin to stay with him, he had the golden cup of the king planted in his belongings, he, this was a scheme to keep him. Now he asked them, because remember the brothers of Prophet uh, uh, Yusuf they were Jewish, they you know, uh, followed the Sharia of Prophet Musa Musa actually, Musa comes later. Um, so they're, they're considered, yes, they are considered from the Bani Israel, and they have the Jewish law, yes, I'm sorry, Prophet Musa comes later. Now what was that Jewish law at the time? Prophet Yusuf asks them, he tells them, what is the punishment in your law? Because remember, now they don't know who Yusuf is, he's just this guy in Egypt, he's working with the government. He's asking them and they're from the Bani Israel. He's asking them, what is the punishment for the one who steals in your law, what did they say? They say the the punishment is that you get to keep him, that means he's enslaved. If one of us stole that cup of the king, then he's to be enslaved. 
That was according to their law and this carried on. This carried on in the Jewish traditions until Musa And you find parts of the Bible, the Old Testament actually talking about that. Now this is in Judaism, but Islam of course doesn't recognize this. You know, if you're indebted, if you steal, there's a different punishment for it. You don't get enslaved. The forms of enslavement are very limited in Islam. There are basically two forms of enslavement. Either you're born to two parents who are slaves, both of them have to be slaves. If one of them is free, then the child will be free. If both parents are slaves, then the child will be slave. That's one form of new enslavement, right? The second form is in a just battle when the Muslims are violated and they def they're defending themselves and they capture the enemy. They are granted victory. They have the right, they don't have to. They have the right to enslave their women and children. But it must be a just battle authorized by the Prophet or one of his representatives. Now let's talk about the second type, this new form of enslavement. Why would Islam recognize something like that? Isn't that injustice? You take women and children and you enslave them? What's their sin? Especially women and children, they had no role in any of those political problems, right? Let's say the mushrikeen and, and their villages. It was the men who were usually propagating and, and instigating and shedding blood. The women stayed at home. They didn't participate in the battles. Why are they subjected to this punishment? What is the rationale behind it? There are two fundamental reasons why Islam allowed that. And if you really look at that, you realize that, um, you know, especially given the circumstances of the time, um, this, there was a lot of logic behind this. Number one, usually when a village from the mushrikeen would attack the Muslims and the Muslims would gain victory, the men would be killed in the battlefield. Usually that village would be left without men to take care of them. Now in 7th century Arabia, when that happened, what's the fate of those women and children? Destruction and death. Imagine women and children, their men got killed in the battlefield, you leave them in that village, they'll either starve to death, they'll be killed, raided, they'll be raped, they'll be corrupted, you never know what happens to them. By bringing those women and children in the Muslim community, which is supposedly a healthy community, you have a Prophet who's leading the community, that was actually a way to save them from that destruction. Now if the Prophet brings those women and children in society and says, Muslims come and take care of them, let's be practical. Let's be very practical. Who would take care of them? Not many. It's a burden, it's an obligation. Not many people were, doing, were willing to do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Come spend on them, take care of them, raise them. It's not like you had a state full of orphanages and welfare. Remember at the time, we're talking about 7th century Arabia. The only way in that Arabian society to encourage the people of the city, the people of Medina to take them in their care and to treat them humanely was what? Enslavement. Because now when you are told, okay, you know, take these women and children as slaves, the Muslims would come, they would take them, they would become part of their families. They would be raised with them, they would spend on them, clothe them, give them food. And then eventually the Prophet had a plan to free them. That's why you see Islamic law imposes sometimes on a person such as the kafarat, the laws of expiation, you have to free a slave. 
So the Prophet realized that the best way to save them, bring them in, the only way to get these people to take care of them is by enslaving them, that was the only incentive and motive. But then the Prophet put rules, they have rights, you can't oppress slaves, you can't hit them, you can't beat them, you have to treat them humanely and you should free them. And sometimes if you commit some violations, you have to free them. Some of the kafarat mandate you to free the slave. So the Prophet had a way to deliver liberty to them, but it required an, an extra step. This could only come in the form of enslavement. So now when you think about something like that, you know, do you find this uh, given, given what I said, and I tried to really summarize it, you know, make it very brief for you, it has many other dimensions. Do you find this as something that contradicted human rights at the time in 7th century Arabia, or do you find this reasonable? Is this something that, you know, contradicts the rahmah of Allah and His religion? And remember, it's not like the Prophet was waging wars, they were waging battle. And by the way, this issue of enslavement was a deterrent too. This would make the enemies, the mushrikeen, think twice about fighting the Muslims. You know, they were, it was very clear to them, look, don't play around here. Let the Prophet do his thing in Medina, don't fight him. Because if you do, and the Muslims are granted victory, your women and children will get enslaved. Do you want that for your women and children? So stay put. It was actually also a deterrent that would stop further bloodshed. So we find that when you examine the laws of enslavement, and there are many, many restrictions on it, and the system that Islam gave to society to free those slaves, we don't find it contradicting human rights. In fact, that was the best thing to do at the time. Leave those women in that village without those men, what happens to them? That's it, they're going to perish. And even remember the moral and religious perspective, those villages based on idolatry, corruption, these poor women and children were suffering in that corrupt environment. Islam brought them to the healthy Medina community, a community that's based on justice, that's based on spirituality, that's based on rights, you're actually saving the future of those women and children by bringing them to a healthy society rather than leave them in those villages of idolatry and shirk and corruption and injustice. This was actually something that was in their own interest. And by the way, many of these, most, in fact all of them, those women and children who were enslaved, they're not that many by the way, but those who were they actually became part of the fabric of Medina, they became citizens, later on they were freed and they had the rights. That was much better than having them you know, perish in their villages or stay corrupt and uh, under a, a rule that was not just. Yes sister. Do you think maybe the arguments of orientalists or you know, colonialists that use in terms of um, you know, we can change the word and say entrustment but they're not gonna buy it they're not gonna buy it because they're gonna say look you can word it differently but in reality when we see what happened that's a type of enslavement so it's a good idea to use more positive words but in the end if they come and object and say you know that's just another word for enslavement you took them without their consent and you just um, gave them to families, right? Without their consent. And sometimes they would be sold in the slave market. So that is a type of enslavement. So 
if we can use a more positive word and they accept fine but if they don't at least we need to explain the rationale behind it. Are they sold against their will? Yes because when they're taken as uh, captives they're brought to Medina and basically what happens is um, those soldiers who participated in the battle they would buy they, they would get a share because they're considered part of the spoils of war so they would get a share of them some of them would immediately just sell them in the slave market because let's say they did not need them or they figured maybe other families could take care of them so remember at the time those who were taken as captives they had financial value they had monetary value they had a price in the market so they would be sold against their wishes yes that was the slave system now remember the, the religion of Islam reformed the system it placed a lot of restrictions and in the end Islam achieved emancipation look at the Muslim world look at the Middle East way before Abraham Lincoln and laws and United Nations that banned slavery. Was slavery a big part of the Middle East? Why not? There were a lot of wars initially, why? Because Islam gave a practical system to make those uh, slaves free. It's here in America which we have a huge issue with slavery. When they went to Africa and they just enslaved people without any uh, legitimate reason. So we find that the Islamic law, even though Muslims were not observant of Islamic laws throughout history, but at least one thing Islam achieved, look at the Islamic world, they never really had a big problem with enslavement, they never really did. Even those few who would be enslaved, eventually they would be released and they would be granted their freedom. Because Islam laid out conditions to make them free. Yes brother. some of these people who willingly went as ISIS brides and you see papers coming out of the University of Chicago and you see some of these uh, news sources coming and saying that today an ISIS five-year-old went and shot people in a cage, captives from like, you know, from Shia or from uh, Yazidis or whoever. I, I think it uh, would be justified to keep, to capture them and bring them to such a society. A more them. healthy society, reform them, yeah, and now, exactly. You know, with, with humanitarian way that's actually a very good example yeah that they're being dealt with this is more than what it, I mean sometimes these people are the ones who are you know inciting more and more so yeah you killed off the men but now yeah imagine the families of people like ISIS their children and women growing up in that extremist mentality right if you take them even if it's against their will even if it's by force if you take them to a healthy society and you reform them you're actually doing them a favor yeah, some of these that's a good analogy what's going to happen to their children and families yeah that's a very big that's a very important concern so at the time you know these people were being saved from these corrupt environments and villages and actually that was in their own interest uh, yes sister how, else, how do you um, assume that they're going to be put into a family that's going to take care of them like if you were in a battle and you lost a relative and now you're asked to take care of a slave from your enemy how can you assume that the family that can take care of that? See, the, the, the process by which the Prophet ensured that most of them would be taken care of. You can't guarantee that everyone will be treated. You know, people make mistakes. There are bad people in society too. But the Prophet, the first thing he did, he created a healthy community in Medina. 
every day giving them advice, gathering them for salah, you know, um, warning them that if they oppress others, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish them. When you give a healthy system to society and you raise families in a healthy environment, then you can trust that most of them, they will be good to their slaves or to those whom they're adopting and taking care of. So by creating a healthy system, you can actually rely on that healthy system. Now, yes, they knew that these are the women and the children of their enemies, but they also had a person like the Prophet telling them do this for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And remember, there was an incentive for them. It's not like they were just, it was a burden on them. And that's why I mentioned in the beginning, the only incentive that you could give a people like that to take care of them was through, uh, you know, uh, enslavement or let's call it a, another type of adoption because basically these women and children they had value in the slave market so that's like uh, having more assets you own more things right you could sell them and you could um, make money 